Well, good morning again, everybody. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that as we uh, read this word together and think about it together, as we talk about it together for a few minutes, that you would meet uh, every one of us by your spirit in exactly the places where we are. That you draw uh, alongside those of us who um, are, feel strong in faith and ready to hear from you, those of us who feel weak in faith because uh, you seem distant to us or we have been running from you. Come alongside those of us who aren't even sure what we believe. Father, uh, meet us all with this word and show us the word that bears our flesh. Seated at your right hand, change us by his grace. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, the gospel lesson this morning is from Matthew's story of what happened uh, on dawn, at dawn, on that Sunday after Jesus was crucified. So I'm going to read Matthew 28 for us. Uh, you can follow along in the order of worship if you'd like. It's Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So uh, one Saturday when I was seven, uh, our family made the short drive from Baltimore, where I grew up, to Washington, D.C., to go to the National Air and Space Museum. This was kind of a regular ritual for us. There is a a planetarium at that museum, and we went to the show that day. Uh, I don't have the slightest memory of what that show uh, was about, other than stars, I would guess. Um, But I do remember that at one point uh, during that show, the, the narrator made a passing reference to the possibility of life on other planets. And when the narrator said that, this UFO-looking thing popped up and it, and it traveled across the top of the dome and it was supposed to be really funny. But I don't mind telling you that to a young man of the tender age of seven, it was a bit unsettling. Well, we got home and that evening our family sat down to watch a show called Salvage One. Uh, Salvage One was the kind of show that only the 70s could have given to our world actually had to look it up and make sure that it wasn't a figment of my imagination. Andy Griffith uh, played a salvage guy who had gone to the moon and collected all of the old Apollo stuff that had been left behind and sold it. 
And uh, the show was about his further adventures as a scrap man, <laughs> of course. Well, on the show that night, his further adventures as a scrap man were in a haunted house. Not cool to this second grader. Not cool. Now I was officially scared stiff, thinking about aliens and about ghosts, and I had to go to bed. And that primed me perfectly for what happened next. When the bedroom lights went out, the light from outside came in through my curtains and cast a shadow on the ceiling in the shape of none other than Darth Vader. <laughs> I, was, I was absolutely convinced that Darth Vader was hovering outside my bedroom window waiting to bust in and pounce on me. So I did what any smart, terrified, sensible seven-year-old would do. I freaked out. I yelled for my mom and she came in a flash. And when I, uh, when I told her what was going on, she took a bath towel and she draped it over the top of the curtains so that there was no more shadow on my ceiling. But as you and I both know, a bath towel is no match for the Dark Lord of the Sith. <laughs> so what I did was ask my mom to stay with me, which she did. And that did the trick. I mean, I was still afraid because Darth Vader, but something else had strolled up. Something else had strolled up and walked right beside the fear that I felt, something more powerful, more solid, more true than that fear. It was a settled sense that I would be okay. And I just want to say, church, that that same sense, that same kid-like sense of settledness, that same kid-like sense that I will be okay, that it will be okay, is on offer to people like us this morning precisely because of what we just read together. I'm not really talking about uh, scary shadows on the ceiling, although that could be a part of it. I'm talking about knowing that we are okay against all of the stuff that casts the shadows onto the ceiling. I'm talking about knowing that we are okay against all of that stuff that we spend our whole adult lives trying to build security against. Our own frailties, our own insecurities, bodies and minds that do not work the way that we want them to work, things that we have done that we hope no one ever finds out about, things that we won't or feel that we cannot stop doing even though doing them hurts us and everyone around us, the unbearable burden that we feel that we belong only to ourselves, that word that we hear from all around us that we belong only to ourselves and it's up to us to create meaning and it's up to us to create purpose in our lives. The suffocating anger that seems to be the oxygen of our country's political life, the thinness, the inhumanity of our communal life together. And then there is, of course, the last enemy, the one we all face, death itself. Church, I am telling you that the resurrection of Jesus is more powerful and more solid and more true than every one of those things. It means that none of those things, none of those things have the last word about us. It means that new creation ebbs and flows around all of us right here in this place this morning. 
And those beautiful women were the first in all of the world to begin to know that truth, and they were the first to bear witness to it, and so we join them again at dawn on the first day of the week. The prelude, <laughs> the prelude is worth remembering first. After Jesus died, a man named Joseph of Arimathea worked up his courage to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. He had to move quickly because the sun was going down and he wanted to care for Jesus' body before the Sabbath began. And he laid Jesus in his own tomb. And Matthew, the gospel writer, Matthew makes sure that we know that while all of this was happening, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. Opposite the tomb. They saw everything. Which should come as no surprise at all to us because Matthew has also made it very clear that those same women were there looking on from a distance while Jesus died too. In fact, Matthew wants us to know these women, these women have been with Jesus from the very beginning, from the start years ago back home in Galilee. And so this story, uh, the story of Easter morning begins with their fidelity. They had been faithful to Jesus from the start, and so, of course, they make their way to where his body was as soon as they were able to get there that morning. And there's something in this, I think, for people like us. And I don't know if there's any simpler way to say it than to say that fidelity is deeply important for people who follow Jesus. These women... Teach us what it looks like to remain with him. Matthew doesn't mention it, but we know that they have come in part to care for his body, to care for his dead body in the best way that they could. Do you understand their fidelity carries them all the way to what they thought was the end and then past it? Some of the time when people like us face suffering or when we face trouble or when we face pain, when we feel like we're right up against it, right up at the very end, our instinct is not to remain. Many of us want to let go in that moment and wander away and find some other comfort or some other answer that delivers more quickly to us than Jesus ever seems to be able to deliver. The list is long of those things that we run to, as is the list of their disappointments to us. So if you, have, uh, if you have wandered away, or you think you might, consider the beautiful, stubborn fidelity of these women as an invitation. Stay with Jesus, or come back if you have to, and see. It's like Jesus said to his friends, minutes, minutes before he was arrested and they all took off. Abide in my love. Stay with Jesus and see. And it does make you wonder at least a little bit where everybody else was. I mean, the disciples, we know where they are. They're locked in a room, hiding, cowering in fear. But what about all those other people uh, who had hailed him as a king the week before? What about all of those people who were in wonder at how he silenced the elites that week? What about what about those people that one day had eaten their fill of, of bread and of fish and knew something was up? Where are they? Isn't anyone curious? Because you don't have to wonder too long, though, because that's how life is in a world that's closed, isn't it? 
or in a world that we have chosen to believe is closed. Horrible, horrible stuff happens and the endless grind remains and then we just try to get on as best we can. Even the most idealistic among us eventually grow tired. Most in that city had already moved on from that young Galilean prophet. They were headed back from pilgrimage. pilgrimage. They were starting work again that morning. But church, what if that isn't what the world's like? What if the world isn't closed? What if what we see is not all that we get in this world? What if there is more to existence? What if there is more to being human than what we can see and taste and feel right in front of us this moment? Well, if that's the case, then things like hope and joy and self-giving love can march their way in with glad shouts through all of the open doors. Because in an open world, things like hope and joy and love, they're not foolish dreams. They're not silly distractions. In an open world, they are actually what we suspect they would be. We are what they, they are what we long for them to be. They are the things that we have been made for. They are the things that we have been created for. Beauty, too, truth, too, justice, all of that stuff. We have been made for it. And that means that we can dare to face suffering and trouble and pain in our own lives and in the lives of people around us with open hands. People who are ready to rebuild and repair and restore wherever we can. Ready to give of ourselves because we know that suffering and trouble and pain do not say all that there is to say. Not even close. They cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. What if we lived in a world like that? Well, those women, they don't quite know it yet, but they did live in a world like that. And that means that we do too. Now listen, that that great earthquake (laughs) and that blindingly luminous, terrifying angel and the stone rolled away, listen, none of that, none of that was for Jesus. (laughs) Like he needed it to get out or something. All of that stuff was for the women. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead had already happened, and the women had now stumbled on the after party. And of course, it is deeply, deeply, deeply terrifying. It's like nothing they've ever seen, nothing they've ever experienced before, and there at early dawn with these big, strong guards falling on their faces all around them, looking like dead men. Somehow, somehow these women hang on, somehow these women stay on their feet. And the angel meets them precisely where they are first. Don't be afraid. I know why you've come here. You're seeking Jesus who was crucified, but he isn't here. He is risen like he said. And then he invites them to come and to see that empty place. Come, take a look at this big yawning void over here. The place they had seen that Friday before. The place that had had Jesus' body in it. The place that had looked to them like the end, and now it is not the end somehow. And then there's this job to do. He says, go quickly, tell the disciples that he's risen, and he's going to Galilee, and that's where you'll see him. Church, if what the angel told them is true, then absolutely nothing is the same. Not for them, not for anyone, not for anything anywhere, including us. 
New creation has started sometime before they arrived that morning, and now those women, those women are alive in it. I don't think for a minute, <laughs> I don't think for a minute they, they could have processed all of that any more than they could have articulated any of that in the moment, but it's true, and they can feel the truth of it. They can feel the truth of it in their bodies, and they can feel the truth of it in the air all around them. And I know that they know it's true because Matthew tells us they departed quickly with fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. Now I know the angel had just told them not to be afraid, but come on. <laughs> of course they're afraid. They had not ceased to be human. But now something else has strolled up. Something else has strolled up, and now it walks right beside that fear. And it's joy. <laughs> joy now walks commensurate to their fear. You know, in Scripture, joy goes deeper, and it goes further than being happy or being delighted. I mean, delight and happiness can certainly be a part of joy, and it's great, it's great when they are. But sometimes it isn't. In the Christian faith, joy is that uh, kid-like sense. That kid-like deep down subtleness that comes when you know for sure everything is gonna be okay. Like seven-year-old me with my mom that night, it'll be okay. Despite the, the present chaos, despite all of the pain, Despite all of the trouble in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, despite our own sin and failures and addictions, despite that whole unbearable weight of self-belonging that our culture keeps wanting to throw on our shoulders, despite the injustice all around us, despite the gnawing unsettledness and unease, despite all of those things and in the face of those things, joy raises its fist and says defiantly and triumphantly, it will be okay. That is a fact that is absolutely true. As Julian of Norwich said it so beautifully, all shall be well. And why? Why is this true? Why is there joy now strolling alongside the fear in those women's hearts as they start off on that wild run? I'll tell you why. <laughs> Precisely because Jesus has risen from the dead. <laughs> Precisely because Jesus has risen from the dead. Because he has risen, dragging death itself and all of the sin that caused it behind him as his victims. Drained and defeated of their ultimate power forever. Because God the Father has begun in the resurrection of Jesus that long and beautiful work of reconciling every last thing in this world to himself. And I want you to know, church, <laughs> that all of that starts with people like you and me. All of it, all of that great grace, all of that reconciliation, all of that forgiveness, all of that newness, it starts, it starts with people like you and me. And if you are tempted to think that couldn't possibly be true, if you, if you would like to dare to believe it and you just need a push, then check out what happens next because Jesus stops the Marys before they can even get out of the garden. 
Behold, Jesus met them, Matthew says, and he said, greetings. Hello. (laughs) The kindest, kindest, simplest approach. And when they fall at his feet, which of course they were going to do, he meets them like the angel where they were. Don't be afraid. And then Jesus repeats that commissioning the angel gave them, but with one very, very, very important change. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. The angel had called them the disciples. You know, those guys hiding in a locked room, the ones who had fallen asleep. When Jesus said, this is the only thing I want you to do, just stay awake. The ones who denied knowing who he was, the ones who scattered and ran away to save their own skins, the ones who no doubt in that very moment feel a deep shame, the ones who wish they could do it all over again with maybe some backbone, maybe some resolve this time. Cowards and deniers and fakes and fools, Jesus calls them his brothers. He relieves their crushing sorrow with his endless forgiving grace. And I don't know how that sounds to you on this Easter Sunday morning, but I don't mind telling you how it sounds to this fool. It sounds like the greatest thing I have ever heard. It sounds like the best news any of us have ever heard. It's the kind of news that could open the door for real joy to slip in with a shout and run alongside all of my very real fear and one day outpace that fear forever. And church, precisely because of Jesus' death and resurrection for us, this is what he offers people like us who follow him in faith. He calls us his family. His sisters, his brothers, forgiven and restored and made new and given a place in this new creation that he is growing with patience, with insistence, and with love all around us. He is risen indeed. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would remind us again through the fidelity of these women, through the word of grace that your risen son gave to them, Father, that you would remind us again that you love people like us. You offer us forgiveness and you offer us a place and a vocation in this world. Father, we ask that you would do whatever it takes in the lives of of people like us to help us to believe and to cling to him in faith. And we pray this in the name of the risen Jesus. Amen.